0: I I think it's important to stop and recognize that it is, in fact, a beautiful day. We had a rainy day yesterday. Today, I was a little nervous, but it turned out amazing. I have a friend who says that every time he looks up in the sky and he sees the green of trees against the blue of the sky, he hears the Holy Spirit say to him, I am having so much fun today. And I think it's important, I know it's not everything, but it's important sometimes to stop and notice that God is at work in ways that, If you were not at work, we wouldn't have a world to live in. I know sometimes we look at the world and we see craziness and chaos and difficulty, but the fact of the matter is God is still sustaining creation by his presence. The trees grow, the clouds move, the rains water the earth because he wills it to and he sustains it and he's holding all of it together. And I say that because it's important that we remember because he's also holding you together even now. The Bible's really clear that God sustains us by his presence. In the book of Acts, Paul says, in him we live and move and have our being. Book of Job says, were he to withdraw his breath, all creation would return to dust. Crazy, isn't it? That means you exist because he thinks of you. That's not the message for today, but I think it's important to remember in times like this that God is thinking of you, that he is with you, that he is sustaining you even in this moment. So with that in mind, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this beautiful day that you have made. We recognize that there is still space in a beautiful day like this to lament the pain of what's happening in the world, in our nation, to lament the pandemic that we're suffering through, to lament divisions. And we do that as part of our worship, but we don't want to lose sight of the fact that in it all, you're still at work. And you are still sustaining your creation. And as long as you are giving us breath, there is reason to worship. There is reason to praise and to be grateful. And so today, we are grateful. We're grateful that you love us and are with us. We're grateful that you've given us a church to be the expression of your body in the world. We're grateful that you speak to us and meet with us personally. And we pray, God, that as you have already been doing that, you would do it now, in and through this community. So speak, Holy Spirit, your children are listening. We pray all this in your name. Amen. Amen. So uh, Sundays at Canopy are just a part of the life of the church, uh, but the, the part that's really significant here is that Sundays are about setting a trajectory. So this is the beginning of a new week, and the stuff that we do here is not just about kind of empty rituals or just doing it for the sake of doing it. We do it because it sets off the week in a certain direction. And there's some things that we think are just fundamental to life with Jesus, like prayer, we want to start our week with a commitment to prayer. So when we pray in this space many, many times, it's so that we set that as the expectation and the desire for the rest of the week that we move through this week with prayer. When we worship together, we we don't just sing songs because that's what Christians do. We sing songs because these songs are true. Those are notes. We're going to... Well, I think I know what they say. We'll figure it out. Um, because they set the direction... That those, those songs say things that are true about God and they set the direction for, for where we're going to go with our lives. We're going to... Keep our eyes focused on Him. And so we sing these songs as a way, thanks babe, as a way of, uh, of setting us up for the rest of the week. Um, things There's other, other things that we do, like we're about to listen to God's Word because we intend to live our lives on the basis of this Word. So we come to this place and we stand firm and center ourselves in this so that as we move through the week, we do so on the foundation of what God says is true. Another one of those practices that we do in this place is generosity. We believe that generosity is the call of the Christian life, because that's how God is with us. And so at Canopy, we also, uh, we take time in all of our services to talk about generosity, specifically generosity toward Canopy as sort of a kingdom outpost, uh, but just more broadly that we want to be generous people, taking all of the resources that God has given us, whether that's time or talent or treasure, and returning it back to him in worship. Uh, So one of the ways that we do that certainly is giving to our local community, uh, and we have a prayer that we uh, call a Canopy Giving Prayer that I'd love to pray together. It's in your, um, it's in your lyrics handouts, um, but I'd love to pray that now. It goes like this, if I can remember all the words this time, because I don't have my handout. Last week I forgot one of them. So let's pray it together. You can just pray with me. Lord, we give you our first because it reminds us that it's yours already. Everything we have is a gift from your hand. Lord, we give regularly because the habit of giving aligns our hearts and lives to the rhythm of heaven. Lord, we give sacrificially because that's how you give to us, completely and without reservation, and we want to be like you. And Lord, we give joyfully because we are honored to invest ourselves in the work of your kingdom in and through this community. So we want to live lives of radical generosity. One of the expressions of that is giving to a local church community. If Canopy is your local church community, would like to invite you to give here, uh, you can do thro- do so through our website, canopy.church/give, knowing that 25% of the money that you give to this church goes out again through our first fruits um, partnerships locally and around the world. So let's dive into God's word together. We are in the book of Philippians today. We're going to be in chapter three, uh, verses one to fourteen. Section. I love the whole book. This is one of my favorite sections in it. And let me give a little bit of context just to, to paint the picture. So, the Apostle Paul travels the world in the first century planting all these different churches in different places. Um, and every time he plants a church, what he finds is he finds a community of people who are passionate and receive the gospel readily and joyfully. Now, for the, for some of them they're they're Jewish uh, converts to Christianity so they have some background in the old testament they understand some of what's happening the apostle paul never set out to plant a new religion so uh, he is he considers uh, jesus to be the completion the fulfillment of judaism uh, and so if you're a jewish convert and you're hearing the gospel you might kind of just fall right into line with that but if you are a gentile convert all this is going to be new you're going to have no context for this at all and the apostle paul considered himself specifically an apostle to the Gentiles. So he spent a lot of time planting churches in contexts where people didn't, not only did they not know Jesus, they didn't know any of the story. So he has to kind of tell the story, lay down um, what is going on here, and many times by the power of the Holy Spirit, this gospel is received with joy and a church is planted. Now, as we find out so often, it happens in our lives and in the world, when the message of Jesus comes into a context, it comes into a context that already has a lot of other messaging. Right? That's, that's how this gospel thing works. Jesus doesn't sort of uh, speak into a vacuum. He speaks into real life and to real situations where there's real stuff happening around you. And so the gospel comes in and these churches are planted. And, and some of them were shocked to find out that Jesus didn't show up a couple days later and take them home to glory. Instead, he left them in the context where all these voices are still speaking where all this messaging is happening, where there's all sorts of other gods to worship, where there's all sorts of other things to believe and ways to live. And immediately, in every context, side gospels or (laughs) false gospels start coming in and beginning to corrupt the church. And so the Apostle Paul writes letters. That's why we have all the letters that we have. We have the letters in the New Testament because there are problems in the church. Isn't that encouraging? To know that every church from the very beginning has had its issues, has had its problems, and needs pastoral and apostolic guidance to keep on track. And so the Apostle Paul writes a letter. The one that we're reading today, one of the big issues that he dealt with really throughout his ministry was kind of a funny one for us today. It's, it's strange to talk about. It's strange for me to be standing up here and talking about. So forgive me, if you're not new to church, we don't talk about this all the time, but it's the issue of circumcision, okay? I'm not going to go into a lot of details, We're just going to let it roll the way it is, but here's the issue. Circumcision was a big deal in Judaism. It was a sign that you are a part of God's covenant people, so it's a command, a mitzvah that's given in the Old Testament, and the expectation was that every Jewish male would be circumcised as a symbol of their covenant relationship with God. Now, could God have thought of something else? Yes. We'll have to have this conversation with him sometime. Why that specific act? But Regardless, that was the act, and in order to be the covenant people of God, you had to participate in that act. Now, what I just said is true. Paul and, and, and Peter and all of these apostles did not consider what they were doing to be a new religion. They considered it to be the overflow, that Jesus was the fulfillment, the long-awaited prophet, the Messiah that Judaism had been pointing to. So they didn't consider that they were starting a new religion, and this is where things get confusing, because in that old religion, in Judaism, there are all sorts of laws, circumcision being one of the most significant ones, that what do we do with now that Jesus has come? And this was a major question, not so much, again, for Jewish converts to Christianity, because they had it all taken care of already, but for Gentile converts to Christianity for whom this was never a thing. Because now... Paul comes in and he preaches a gospel that goes something like this. Jesus Christ came, lived among us, demonstrated for us what life in the kingdom is supposed to look like, died for us, rose again, and ascended into heaven to send send the Holy Spirit. And if you receive that gift, if you bow your knee to him as Lord and enter into his kingdom, he gives you that Holy Spirit, and you are right now, by the gift of the Spirit, a child of God. That's the gospel that Paul preaches. Now, where does circumcision come in? Nowhere, according to Paul. But you've got to understand how Jewish Christians are now very concerned. Because <laughs> it's in the Old Testament. And so they come into churches after Paul has left and gone on to plant an ex- another church. And they tell all the Gentiles, yes, yes, yes. Well and good. But if you don't do these things, first among them being circumcision, you are still not a covenant person of God. In other words, whatever Paul did for you, it's like a, it's like a gateway in. But there's still other stuff if you want to sort of upgrade your membership <laughs> if I can put it in those sort of terms. You you need to be circumcised and Paul deals with this question specifically most directly in the book of Galatians but here in Philippians as well and that is the context for our passage today. We're hoping that those We'll see if the stage falls down we'll just going to keep going. Okay. The spirit of God, the word for spirit in Bible is in the Bible is wind. The wind of God. So if the stage blows over, we'll just assume that the Holy Spirit is really getting going, okay? Here we go. Further, my brothers and sisters. This is Paul in Philippians chapter 3, verse 1. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It's no trouble for me to say this to you again, and it's a safeguard to you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision. We who serve God by His Spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for such confidence. If someone else thinks they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Uh, Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law a Pharisee, as for zeal persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness faultless. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What's more, I consider everything lost compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them trash that I may gain Christ, and be found in Him, having a righteousness uh, not of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I. Want to know Christ, the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection of the dead. All right, so this is Paul's address at the question of should a, a Jewish Christian or, or a convert to Christianity become circumcised? Now, that seems like a very niche issue, but at the root of it, the core question was who is the covenant people of God? What is the requirement for one to be considered a covenant person of God, a child of God? In other words, Paul is giving a very basic definition of what it means to be Christian. And I think it's really important. I love that he does it here in one sentence. You know, if you're familiar with the book of Romans, he does, the book of Romans is this amazing unpacking of of Christian theology that kind of spells out in 16 chapters what it means to be a Christian. But here in one sentence, Paul does the same thing. Here's the sentence. It's up in verse 2. He says that the true circumcision, the true people of God, are people who worship by the Spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. That's his definition of what it means to be Christian. And it's really important, I think, today, maybe more so than any time in the last uh, several generations, that we, as followers of Jesus, take a hard look at what it actually means to be a follower of Jesus. You know, that word Christian is one that, depending on who you ask, has all sorts of connotations. There are even some outside the church for sure, but even inside the church who argue that maybe that term has lost its usefulness because it has been so weighed down with baggage, with, with cultural baggage and political baggage and all sorts of other stuff that, that now I think it's important for a church to rise up and say, okay, there's a whole lot of noise out there around this whole Christian thing. There's a whole lot of, of, of conversation in the culture about what it means to be a church. And it's really important that if we want to have any sort of prophetic voice into culture, we know exactly what it is we're talking about. That we know who we are and what we're about. And there's going to be all sorts of questions of practice that rise out of, of, of our definition of Christian. There's, Don't get me wrong, there's still a lot of complexity on what does it mean to... to to be a follower of Jesus in specific areas of our lives. In in our relationships to finances, to other people, to to politics, to to different practices, there's all sorts of complex questions of application. But if we don't get the definitions, the roots right, then we're never gonna be building what we wanna build. (laughs) Does that make sense? It's a question of trajectory, right? If you're building a rocket ship, the most important question is where are you going? (laughs) Because if you don't answer that question, that sort of defining question of what is the mission, what's the purpose, then it doesn't matter what you build, you're never going to hit your target. You know, as I, I've probably shared this before, but a friend of mine says this is what you call first button, first hole stuff. Is familiar with this analogy? You're buttoning up a button-down shirt, right? And if you put the first button in the first hole, then chances are, unless you are wildly incompetent, chances are that your shirt's going to come out okay. But... If you put the first button in the second hole, then no matter how well you button from this point on, (laughs) your shirt will not work. Does that make sense? We have to put the first button in the first hole, and the first button is defining who we are. What does it mean to be a Christian? This is essential for us. This is essential for the watching world. The world is looking on to say, what is going on with this Christian church? It's divided, and it's fractured, and it's politicized, and it's all sorts of stuff. And I think that there is an opportunity here in the mess for a church to rise up and say, okay, this is what it means. This is the basics of following Jesus. And from this place, then, we can explore these questions, these complexities of navigating life. But if we don't start here, we have nothing to offer. So we start with a definition today. Who are the covenant people of God? Who are Christian? Paul says it's people who worship by the Spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. So worship by the Spirit is, is really, really simple here. Essentially, Paul's saying that the Spirit of God is what qualifies a person to worship God, to enter into the presence of God. Now, for again, the, the question of circumcision here is an important one because in Jewish systems... There were lots of different things that had to work right in order for you to be qualified to enter into the presence of God. Things like ritual purity. If you weren't ritually pure, you had to take a period of seven days or however long away from the presence of God before you could enter back into the presence of God. If you had a physical deformity, you may be excluded from the presence of God. If you were not circumcised, you weren't part of the community. You were kind of cast out from the presence of God. If you had sinned, you know, this... uh, John 4, I think this woman caught in the act of adultery, when she asks the question of where do we worship God, I think she's being sincere. I really want to be with him. But she's been ostracized from the presence of God as a result of her lifestyle. There were all sorts of things in Judaism that could disqualify you before you even got in the door. And Paul's saying here, it's not about you. It's not about your cultural heritage. It's not about your ritual purity. We see that over and over again in the Gospels, by the way. Where Jesus makes a point of touching people who were ceremonially unclean. Because he has a, a very different understanding. In the Jewish understanding, holiness, the presence of God, was at risk from ceremonial uncleanness. And in Jesus' understanding, ceremonial uncleanness is at risk from the presence of God. Does that make sense? When he touches, it becomes clean. That's the moral of the story. What God touches becomes clean. It's not about heritage, it's not about upbringing, it's not about ceremonial cleanness, it's not about deformity, it's not even about sin. This is a come-as-you-are kind of gospel. The Holy Spirit touches all sorts of sinners and changes them. And, and that Paul says it's the Spirit of God that qualifies you to become the people of God. So if you have been filled with His Spirit, if you have experienced His presence, consider that an invitation into relationship. Notice that the script is flipped a little bit here. In our context, you have to qualify yourself. And then you can step in. In this context, he initiates the relationship. Woohoo! It's getting rocking back there. Kiana, where are you at? We might want to move your guitar. I'm going to move the guitar. Here we go, here we go. All right. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So he initiates the relationship, not us. He is the one, which is actually true all along. You know, we have this idea, and it's true, that the the covenant is a a, a two-way street, that a covenant is two parties entering into a relationship, that both parties have responsibility. And we certainly see that in the Old Testament. But do you remember the first covenant? I mean, I guess we could argue what the first covenant was, the Abrahamic covenant. Do you remember this story? Abraham God tells him he 's going to bless him and kind of tells him all the stuff he 's going to do for Abraham and then he causes Abraham to fall asleep and have a vision. you remember what the vision is? God cuts these animals in half, which is actually that 's how that 's how you did covenants back in the day is two parties would cut uh, cut animals in half and they would walk between the two animals together as a way of signing the covenant Today we just write it on a piece of paper which is a little bit cleaner but Abraham is asleep, and he sees a vision of what? Of a flame moving between the animals. Without him. This is God setting a paradigm for how he does covenant. He guarantees both sides of the covenant himself. There is no God like this, who says, I know you will fall short of my presence over and over again, so I will guarantee it myself. Remarkable. This is what qualifies, a follower of Jesus, a a true Christian, a covenant person of God is one who worships by the Spirit of God. I think of the, you remember Acts chapter 8, there's this eunuch, this Ethiopian, who comes to Jerusalem, it says he's a God-fearer. In other words, he was a a Gentile convert to Judaism, okay? He, He had converted to Judaism somehow, we don't know his backstory, despite the fact that he was a Gentile, and he made a pilgrimage to Jerusalem supposedly, ostensibly, I guess, to meet with God. Now, what would he have discovered when he got there? When he arrived to the temple, there's a temple that's set up with three courts. The outer court was called the Court of the Gentiles. Then there's another court inside that, and then there's the Holy of Holies within that. So this man, by virtue of his upbringing, his heritage, would have been able to enter no closer than the Court of the Gentiles to the presence of God that he had served and sought with faithfulness. By virtue of his physical deformity, the fact that he's a eunuch, he wouldn't have even been able to get that far. He went from Ethiopia, you know, 2,000 years ago, from Ethiopia to Jerusalem by chariot to meet with God, only to be barred from entry. Returning home, then, he meets with Philip and has this amazing conversation about Jesus, who has come and paid the price for him and now offers to send the Spirit. And they pull up to a body of water. And do you remember what the Ethiopian says? He says, is there anything that can prevent me from being baptized? Do you hear what he's asking after his journey, after his epic epic pilgrimage has ended in failure? He's asking, I've done this before. I have sought God wholeheartedly before only to be turned away. Am I going to be turned away now? Philip's answer? Nothing. Nothing bars you from entry into the presence of God because who Jesus has qualified, no man can turn away. That we are people who worship by the Spirit of God at His initiative, at His leading, and this is fundamentally what it means to be Christian. It means you come as you are, not as you should be. Because you're never going to be as you should be. So if you find yourself today in a place of disqualification, I need to tell you something with all of the tenderness I can muster that is not your right. You are not allowed to disqualify yourself any longer. Jesus has qualified you. And if you've known that truth before, if you received that truth before, but have bought into a lie of disqualification, it's time to repent and come back to a God who qualifies you by his presence. And if you've never known that truth before, if you come in today in a place of disqualification, That's just the habit of life you've lived, and nobody's ever told you this before. Know that in this moment, there's a God who's saying, you're keeping yourself away. I'm not holding you at arm's length. Jesus says, I am the way. He says, I am the door. What is a Christian? It's one who enters through the door that has been flung wide open through no credits or qualification of our own. And then, Paul goes on to say two other things. There it goes. There it goes. All right. Daniel, you're on it, man. Thank you. Good, man. Thank you. We've got sandbags somewhere. I don't know if we want to pull those out. If somebody wants to, if you have Jake, if you, I don't know if you're bored back there, but they're behind the truck, between the truck and the container. Yeah, right back there. Perfect. Thank you. Sorry, we should have thought of that in advance. Run a tight ship around here. All right, Christian is someone who worships uh, by the Spirit, and then two things that are really a pair. He says, who boast in Jesus Christ and who put no confidence in the flesh. That's kind of two pairs of the same thing. Because what do you boast in? You boast in the thing that you're most confident about. Or maybe for some of us, the thing that we want to be confident about, but we're not actually confident about. But regardless, here we go, Paul. Come on, let's give a hand to our sandbag people. Woo! That's 60 pounds that they're just hauling. Looks like nothing. Looks like nothing. Jose, those workouts have been doing, doing great. All right, thank you, guys. appreciate that. Yeah. All right. So you boast about the thing that you're most confident in. So what Paul's saying here is it's really two sides of the same coin. He's saying you want to put your confidence in this place and not in that place. So if what we just said is true, that Jesus is what qualifies you, that he's the one who sends the Spirit by whom we are brought into the presence of God, then Jesus is the thing you should be most confident about moving forward. Okay, Because how many of you know that the Christian life is not just about a destination? So we can say that he has flung open the door and that that it's wide open for us to walk through, but guess what's on the other side of that door? A road that we now walk, right? That's what Jesus says. He says, what? He says, Uh, uh, narrow is the gate and and narrow the road that leads to life so there's a gate and there's a road it's not just about a destination we don't walk through suddenly to find ourselves in glory we walk through to find ourselves invited into a process of becoming who we now are already in christ jesus confusing sentence yes he has done the work You are qualified for the presence of God by virtue of what Jesus has and by virtue of the Holy Spirit he sent you. Now, the task of living, because we still have to live, the task of living becomes becoming who we already are. Because when you get invited through that door and you walk through, you find that you are still in the same old place, but you're a new person and that you carry a whole lot of baggage with you that for whatever reason, Jesus hadn't just snapped his fingers and gotten rid of. I love those, you guys know those stories, those testimony stories, where I used to struggle with this and then the Holy Spirit filled me and suddenly it was gone. You guys know those stories? I love those stories. But in my pastoral experience, it's like one in a hundred. The rest of the stuff, he says, okay, you're going to drag this for a while as you walk this narrow road. And my grace is going to be sufficient. And day by day, we will learn to lay it down. Moment by moment, decision by decision, as you partner with the Holy Spirit, I will change the burden you're carrying. But I'm not going to take it away. I think, I think that all of us are going to arrive at the gates with some, stuff, with some stuff still that we've been holding on to and that we've been dragging along and his grace is sufficient. We are in a process of becoming. Notice what Paul says here. He says, not that I have already obtained all this, have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which God has called me heavenward. I am pressing on. There is an active part that I play in this process of becoming. And it's not just about me. It's actually for the world around us too because what would be the use if the answer was, you know, You become, I mean, I guess this is what some people are selling, but what what would be the use to the world if the answer was, if you become a follower of Jesus, suddenly all your problems will be gone? Well, then what happens when you have problems? Then Christians have nothing to say to anybody. You know, if Christians didn't struggle with the stuff that everybody else is struggling with, and by the, the grace and power of the Holy Spirit, move through it in a different way, then what use would we be to the world? So we're in this process of becoming. And we have to walk this road now. I think it's fascinating when Jesus talks about himself as the good shepherd. He talk, in that same passage, he talks about himself as both the door and the shepherd. Which is interesting, right? Because the door is sort of a static thing, whereas the shepherd is one who leads you on a journey. And he says, I'm both. And you say, how can you be both? I love this story. I ran across a, a biblical commentator who went on a tour of the Holy Land to, to address this very question. And he went to Bedouin shepherds living around Bethlehem. And he asked that question. And the shepherd, he said, how can you be, how can Jesus be both the door and the shepherd? And the shepherd smiled and said, it's easy. And he took him out to the sheep pen. And the sheep pen was this enclosure that had a gap in it that served as the door. And the shepherd said, I am the shepherd. And then he laid down in the doorway and said, this is where I sleep. I am the door. Jesus is both. He is the way in, but then past that, he's the one who leads us on in life. And the question becomes, how do we put confidence in him and not in all the baggage that we carry? Because chances are that you've been whatever you were before you knew Jesus longer than you've been what you are now. I mean, I've been around the church a long time, like almost 40 years. But I've been a white guy for 43 years. An American for 43. I've been all sorts of stuff for longer than I was a follower of Jesus. And I have muscle memory from that stuff because I still live in all of it. And now the task is putting confidence in him, in the shepherd who is also the door, and not in those other identities. Paul says, put no confidence in the flesh. Now a couple of verses ago, flesh just meant circumcision. But now he has expanded this to be anything by which you would define yourself apart from Jesus. That's the definition of flesh that's used here in this passage. Any means of confidence, any way of self-definition apart from Christ is flesh. And Paul says, our task here is to put no confidence there and to put it all in him. Paul says, look, if you want to talk confidence in the flesh, I've got every reason. And he lists this really bizarre resume, the first thing of which is circumcision. He says, you want to talk circumcision? Check. I got it. I did it perfectly. He says, I was born to the right family. We did all the right stuff. I went to the right schools. I did everything, he says, perfectly. Yet, whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. Crazy, isn't it? He says, in a moment, I met this Jesus. And he filled me with his spirit. And in that moment, I realized that everything I had ever accomplished up until that point meant nothing compared to him. It is trash compared to simply knowing him. And that's a powerful statement. And I believe that Paul believed it. But you know what? He had to live it every day. It's one thing to say it in a moment. It's another thing to begin to actually act out of it and live out of it on a daily basis. Because when you find yourself in an old situation, all of those old habits are going to come back. And so putting no confidence in the flesh and instead boasting in Christ Jesus is a matter of examining our influences and rehabituating ourselves. Examine your influences. What are the forces and the factors that are shaping us? This is a question that I have had so much cause to ask of people around me, of Christians around me, and certainly of myself, especially in this season. As I see the stuff that's posted on social media and and the way the church and Christians are behaving toward one another and toward the world, I want to ask them and ask myself, because I'm not at all exempt, what is shaping you? How is that opinion being formed in you? What are the influences that you're placing confidence in whose voice are you listening to so i have to, if i have to be really honest just on a pure numerical standpoint i spend more time listening to other stuff than i do to the holy spirit i don't want that to be true but in seasons of anxiety the flesh in me all of the other voices the other places of confidence rise up and i find myself listening to the, reading the news more than reading the bible listening to podcasts more than listening to the holy spirit Now, this is not to say there's anything wrong with that. There's actually nothing wrong with any of Paul's list, except for maybe persecuting the church. But everything else on there, nothing wrong with it. But it's just not Jesus. And if we're talking pragmatics, which one's going to get you home? Which one is going to get you where you want to go? So who's your influence? This is a question that I think every Christian ought to take a really hard look at right now. And then, how are we being rehabituated into a kingdom mindset? What habits are we adopting? Because you know that the Holy Spirit's not just going to do this to us, that He's not just going to force holiness or sanctification on you. Yes, He invites you into the presence of God. Yes, you get to come as you are because you're never going to be as you should be. But guess what? When you come in, you're not supposed to stay as you are. We're supposed to change. And in order for us to change, I want to suggest something crazy. It's not just about a spiritual journey. I want to suggest that that sanctification is as much a physical thing that happens in us as a spiritual thing that happens to us. Think about it. If sanctification, if the process of of becoming more like Jesus, of becoming more holy, is, is something that will actually affect our behavior, it'll affect the things that I say and the ways that I think and the things that I do, then that means that it's actually physically changing my mind. And we know that that works through like neural pathways and synapses and all sorts of crazy stuff that's happening physically in me. That means sanctification is physical. Not just spiritual. It will, or, or to maybe a better way of putting it is everything is spiritual. Because that's what I am. I'm, I'm, I'm dust filled with the Spirit of God. Mixed together in some way that can't be taken apart. It's this mysterious thing. And so... If that's the case, if the the Holy Spirit is is sanctifying me through my body, then it makes sense that my body and my mind has to participate in that process. Just like anything else. I have to adopt, just if, if you want to change your mind, what are the things you have to do? You have to adopt new habits. In any area of life, and that's certainly true here as well. And that's, like I said at the top of this sermon, that's what church is all about. It's about habits. It's about habits of gathering and habits of prayer and habits of generosity and habits of worship that align us to the kingdom of God and that put us in a place where our minds are being transformed. Right? Romans 12. We are no longer being conformed to the pattern of this world, but being transformed by the renewing of our minds. And this is a mysterious thing. This is something the Holy Spirit does in us. We worship by the Spirit, but we also participate in, putting no confidence in the flesh, boasting in Christ Jesus. We have a part to play. He is the door, and he is the way. And for those who have walked through the door, it's now about walking the way. And this is a journey we're on. It's a journey that I've called before discipleship. Because we've all been discipled by forces and are being actively discipled by forces that are not Christ. And now we need to be serious about our discipleship with him if we have any hope of doing it differently. If we have any hope of walking the road well, of being of any use to the world around us. He is the door and he is the way. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we thank you. That you have come to us at your initiative. That you have redeemed us and qualified us. And God, we again today receive that gift with gratitude. Some of us for the thousandth time, some of us maybe for the first time. We thank you that you have made a way for us. And now we ask you to help us to walk that way well in a world of competing influences of lots and lots of opportunities to put confidence in something that can't hold our confidence we ask that you teach us to walk the way well would you teach us rhythms and habits that keep us attuned to what you're doing god for those of us who are weary And for whom a conversation about changing habits seems exhausting. Would you refresh us? Would you remind us that what you're offering here is not a heavy burden, but a light burden. One that leads to life. Father, I pray that this conversation today is invitational. And if it has not been in any way, then I pray, God, that, that whatever I said that wasn't invitational would be forgotten. But in this moment, by the power and presence of your spirit, who is with us right here, right now, would you invite us to life, to walk the way, and through us, would you change the world? So I was praying for everybody today. I just got this sense that it's all about confidence today, where our confidence lies. And so as we enter into a time of worship where we're going to sing things that are true of God and through him that are true of us, would you invite the Holy Spirit to do just an honest self-assessment where your confidence lies? What are the influences that are shaping you? What are the habits that are forming you? And allow him to invite you into a new way. If you've strayed from the path, as we all do, as we all have, allow him to invite you back. This is not the whole of a journey. Look, Monday's tomorrow. We're going to have to live it out. But this could be a moment of definition, a moment of, of turning around, of going a different direction. So just invite the Holy Spirit. Ask him that question. Holy Spirit, help me to honestly see where my confidence lies, what my influences are. And there may be things he's asking you to lay down. And as he does, lay them down and replace them with worship. Replace them with what we're singing about here, with a God who invites you into his presence who offers you his spirit, and who helps you walk the way. So what I'd like you to do is just stay seated, have a conversation with God. And when you're ready, Kiana's going to start leading in worship, but when you're ready, just stand. And if you feel like sitting there the whole time, then sit the whole time. And standing doesn't mean that you've necessarily resolved everything, but just stand as you're ready to, to enter into a place of worship, and let's worship together.